so many things an entrepreneur a public speaker translation compeer and a lifestyle writer but at my very core i am a tibetan but if you ask me what tibet its people and the culture is like then i must honestly say that i have never been to tibet and i'm sure i'm not the only one if you've never been to tibet either then this podcast is for you. Deshdele and welcome to your favorite podcast, Waking Up Closer to Tibet. Do you know what makes any place special? Well, I think it's the people. Apart from the scenic Himalayan landscape and the rich flora and fauna, what makes Tibet truly special is its people. That is the Tibetan people. Here's a quick brain food fact. We have a folklore in our culture that we, that is Tibetans, originated from the union of an ascetic monkey and goddess Tara who is disguised as a demon. So basically when the ascetic monkey and goddess Tara who is disguised as a demon had children, their children uh, are believed to be the ancestors, the first ever Tibetan people. Sounds intriguing, isn't it? If you've been fascinated about our people, then this episode is definitely for you. From our origins to our lifestyle in exile, we will talk about it all. So today, we have with us Dr. Carol McGranahan, an anthropologist, lecturer, writer, and historian of Tibet, who's lived with Tibetans to understand us better. She has conducted several researches and has traveled to Tibet and to the Tibetan refugee settlements in India and in Nepal, as well as Tibetan communities in USA and Canada. I am so elated to welcome you on CTT. Thank you so much, Dr. McGranahan, for being here. Oh, well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Since this show is about everything Tibet and Tibetans, I had to have you on. I mean, your work as an anthropologist and historian of Tibet is unparalleled. There is so much that you know about Tibet and Tibetan culture. It's truly fascinating. You've also been to Tibet, right? I mean, for a Tibetan girl like me who dreams of going to Tibet one day, seeing Tibet one day, I am truly inquisitive to hear from you about your experience of Tibet. What was it truly like? Did you see um, the magnificent Patala Palace? Um, it is magnificent and it often feels very unfair to me, right, that someone like myself can travel to Tibet. And it's not because I'm a scholar of Tibet, it's just because I'm not Tibetan, right? The Chinese government makes it difficult um, for Tibetans to travel there. Um, not that it's easy for, for anyone to get there necessarily, uh, but I have been very lucky. I've traveled to Tibet. Um, I've been there four separate times, and the first time was in 1991. It's so actually quite a while ago now. Um, 
but the patala to see the jokang to to stand there to be able to do kora to go in to make offerings is is an incredibly um it's not just something very special and deep and meaningful but it feels like a real privilege to me so i try to whenever i'm there carry with me um you know the prayers the wishes the thoughts the hopes the dreams right of all of my tibetan friends absolutely i think it must be surreal for you, right? That experience, the whole experience. Because me just hearing about, you know, uh, listening to you describe Tibet. And and a lot of people have actually been to Tibet. They say it's like when you're there, it feels like somehow the time has paused. Everything is, you know, it's just still. It's floating. It's, it's a different experience. Did you feel that way? I'm not sure I experience it that way. Okay. I feel that when I'm there often, um, I feel very much a political edge in the air. Um, and that might have to do with the nature of my scholarship, right? I'm mm-hmm. um, in both my historical work and my anthropological research, it's very much about politics. So I'm always there with a, an awareness um, and an attunement to what's happening you know, politically and um, there are some places where you can step outside of that sense of being in a, you know, Chinese surveillance state and all of a sudden be maybe like, you know, sitting on the grounds of a monastery and, you know, the, the sun is so strong, you know, because the elevation is so high and just feeling the sun warming you and thinking about what could be, um, you know, in those moments where it's maybe, you know, just people going about their daily life and, you know, there's dogs running around and little children and, you know, trying to imagine what if this was Tibet under Tibetan rule. Right. And not as part of China. So I guess for me, it's not that time stops. Um, but it's a matter of the what ifs, you know, kind of constantly being present alongside the, um, you know, the, just the political presence. Certainly, certainly. Most of Tibet's history um, was unrecorded until the arrival of Buddhism in Tibet. That is until between uh, 6th to 7th century, which means that we have okay. no records of our culture prior to this era. Or do we? What is your perspective on the lost bits and pieces of our history? Mm. Right. So kind of the arrival of Buddhism really parallels the arrival of of literacy. Right. And so the writing down of history. Right. Which, of course, um, doesn't mean history didn't exist prior to that. But instead, it was something shared more locally. Right. So I think of like the Gesar epic or the way that people would tell stories, including not just Um, ordinary people, right, sitting around the fire in their home telling stories, but people who were given the the role in society, right, like those people who were trusted to be what we would say in English, a bard, Um, you know, so someone whose social role is to be a public storyteller for society. They were the historians of the past. Then the other thing that we have um, or could have access to would be the archaeological record, Right to go in and do archaeological research and see what sort of material remains, um, you know, are there in Tibet? And by that, I don't necessarily mean, for example, like human bones and dating, um, you know, dating how when did the first Tibetans arrive and where were they from and the Denisovians and all that. And that, that's very interesting. But looking at the material traces in terms of um, what were people eating? Where were they living? What were they bringing together into their life? What were they using, like, um, you know, maybe taking bones and fashioning them into needles, right, to sew clothing? Um, what animal parts are we going to find near settlements, 
right, going back thousands of years. So archaeologists have the ability to go in and find history in those ways, right, in the traces left behind rather than the written words. But the Chinese government um, at present, uh, archaeological scholarship in Tibet is, is not happening, right, in ways that are really giving us access to how Tibetans lived in the world, um, you know, prior to the advent of Buddhism. Um, so it's not that we don't have we don't have any historical sources, but they are more muted, right? Mm-hmm. And they're um, they're fewer than I, I think, you know, we all hope that they were right now. And that absolutely, I think it's important to say that's also part of politics, right? The fact that Tibet is colonized right now, um, you know, in, in a different country, under a different government, you know, there might be massive international, you know, archaeological excavations going on in certain parts of Tibet, you know, to really try and understand that history. Um, you know, with people coming from around the world, you know, on, say, like a Tibetan-led team, right, you know, to really explore these questions. You know, for the longest of time in our history, uh, Tibet has remained isolated from the rest of the world, which makes uh, Tibet very mysterious. There's always been this mystery aspect. Speaking of mystery, I want to talk about origins of the Tibetan people because that is also very mysterious to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had heard about this uh, folklore from my mother, Amala, and this story used mm-hmm. to always excite me as a kid. And I'm like, please tell me the story again. And my mom would say that, um, you know, according to Tibetan legend, when the world was new and it just formed um, an estic monkey meditating in the mountains was seduced by uh, goddess Tara disguised as a demon and as a result of their intercourse the first Tibetan ancestors were born do you believe in this folklore what is your perspective what is your take on the origins of the Tibetan people Yes, I absolutely believe it. I love origin stories, you know, and and peoples around the world, right, have the stories they tell of who we are, right, and how we came to be. And the Tibetan story um, really brings together, I think, for me, fascinating commentary, not just on Buddhism, right, in that the rock ogress is seen as an emanation of Tara, but the the monkey is also an emanation of Chenrezig. Right, who is, which is also the Dalai Lama, right? The Dalai Lama is also an emanation of Chenrezig. So, looking at the way that the Tibetan, um, you know, community for so long has grounded themselves, right, in the union of these two deities, but also that you know, through um, you know, these manifestations of creatures, right, on Earth, that also maybe not rock ogres, but at least apes, right? When we think of what do we know um, in terms of kind of modern you know, science of human evolution is that we are descended from apes, right? And we think of, you know, A. australopithecus or A. afarensis, and these are, you know, distant, distant um, ancestors of anatomically modern humans. And so even the modern scientific story, right, told in universities around the world mirrors in some ways this Tibetan story. So they don't include the rock ogress, um, but the ape, Right. In terms of descending from an ape, it is part of actually a global story. Right. And not just a Tibetan story. So I love that resonance. I also love that it's your Amala. Right. Who told you that. And mothers, of course, fathers as well, you know, are often our first and most important storytellers. Right. And telling us about the world, who we are and who we can be. Indeed. And at least for Tibetan refugees, 
um, like me, you know, uh, family is a very important unit that preserves the culture and tradition. And our folklore is also part of our tradition and culture. And uh, just like you rightly mentioned, my Amala would, uh, you know, share all the unique tales and folklores and interesting mythical stories sometimes um, about Tibet. And I would be like awestruck and astounded of like, is that true? Is that possible? And um, I would also uh, be very fascinated by this tale, uh, the Gesar of Ling, right? The kind of supernatural human, you know, superhuman things that he did. And because he was like demigod and he was, it was just amazing, uh, amazing part of my childhood. Now, after the Chinese occupation of Tibet in 1959, Tibetans have been living as refugees in India and around the world. You've conducted several studies on the Tibetan diaspora in India, Nepal, USA, and Canada with regards to their citizenship. Why did you choose to take up this project? I took up this project because it mattered to the Tibetan community, right? So this was something that uh, people were talking about, right? And when you listen to what what are the things that people are talking about when they're, you know, sitting in a tea shop or out for a beer or eating momos or, you know, eating whatever it happens to be or just going for a walk. And, and this was in the 19 19- started in the 1990s uh, for me in terms of paying attention. But then when I was looking for a new project in 2007, um, it was even more on people's kind of thoughts and, and the tips of their tongues, as we say in English. And so I said, well, if this is what people are talking about, what they're debating, what they're arguing, then this needs to be what my next project focuses on. Um, because this is um, currently the issue that matters to the community in exile. Indeed, indeed, because, um, you know, as refugees, a lot of Tibetans find it really difficult to understand the whole process. And now, of course, uh, with more awareness and the younger generation is more educated, is more literate. But in the older days, things were like people wouldn't be so aware. They don't know about how the process is. And it's so difficult for Tibetans to understand, especially uh, the ones who, you know, um, Uh, come from Tibet, you know, um, very recently, they have no clue about this. Uh, Many of the Tibetans living in India as well, or any other, uh, you know, um, Asian, uh, you know, region, they wouldn't have a lot of idea about the whole citizenship process. So, um, I think this is a very interesting uh, study for you, where you're kind of um, learning a lot about the whole process, isn't it? So it is. So I've been doing research with the Tibetan community and for three decades, right, for 30 years. And so what I can tell you is that the change over those three decades has been massive. Um, And if we think of the community as basically being just over 60 years old, right, which is a long time to to be refugees, Hmm. a lot of the practices, um, the statuses, the categories, or the denial of them, right, or documents um, to Tibetans in India, Nepal, has become normalized, such that for many Tibetans who live in India, Nepal, it is normal not to have um, political status, it's normal not to have identity documents, more so in Nepal than India, right? In India, some Tibetans, but not all, have access to some documentation from the state. Um, But no one Unless you've, no one, I mean, this is where it gets tricky. Most Tibetans, and here I mean, you know, like over 90% are not citizens of either India or Nepal. 
right? So there are some who have managed to gain citizenship through a variety of routes, but for the most part, this is a community that have lived as stateless, right, undocumented refugees for 60 years. And I don't actually think most people even in the Tibetan community, never mind kind of South Asian communities, are aware of just how unusual that is. True. So South Asia is the only region of the world where no country has signed on to any of the UN conventions on refugees. It's mm. the only place, you know, it doesn't exist like that anywhere else in the world. So for Tibetans or for any other refugees in South Asia, there is no path to citizenship that is provided for you by or kind of facilitated by the UN in the country into which you've become a refugee. So the Tibetans are, um, you know, as the community knows and often articulates, are in India really, you know, at the at the grace um, and the benevolence in some ways, right? The welcome and invitation of the Indian government. Um, and that was the same in Nepal for a long time under the Nepali king and royal family. It's a little bit different now uh, that Nepal has become a democracy and, and itself is politically troubled. But that ability um, to live for multiple generations, right? In an undocumented status, therefore without rights, and so for the Tibetan community, it has been not to think of themselves, this is my argument, as, as Tibetans have taught me, not so much as not citizens of India or Nepal, but as citizens of a Tibet that will once again, you know, be Tibetan in some form, right? So it's to stake a claim to Tibetan sovereignty. However, as you're saying, like things have changed now, and especially for a new generation in the last especially 20 years, um, as more and more Tibetans actually moved out of South Asia and especially came here to North America, right? First in the 1990s with a group of 1,000 that came on an official U.S. government program. And then uh, sometimes it's called like the, you know, the Nitong and Sumto, like the groups of the 2,000 and 3,000 that came later unofficially, right? Mm -hmm. Informally. And what people found when they got here to both the United States and Canada, you cannot live here undocumented, right? You can't live here for decades and sure. for multiple generations right, without having some form of documentation. And actually, it seems that the same sort of claims um, people want to make in India and Nepal for why we are not getting citizenship, right, in order that we can remain tied to Tibet, People are twisting it slightly to assert that same claim to Tibet from the vantage point of citizenship True. and saying each of these offers us a different route, right? A different avenue, right? From making the claim that we might now be, you know, American or Canadian or, or Swiss or French, but we are still Tibetan. And of course, Tibetans in India, Nepal, you know, who've grown up. Um, watching Bollywood and, and eating, I don't know, <laughs> Pani Puri and, you know, like all sorts of Indian and, and Nepali foods and, and speak multiple South Asian languages often, not just one. As you've traveled to Tibet and to the Tibetan refugee settlements in India and Nepal, as well as have visited the Tibetan communities in USA and Canada, what were some of the apparent differences that you could see, um, whether it is in terms of their culture or lifestyle in the specific regions where Tibetans were settled? That's an excellent question. Um, I mean, one of the big things that seems immediately obvious are things like socioeconomic status, 
right? Um, and that can differ between, say, going between a village or a settlement and then um, a town or a city. Um, although living in a town or city is not necessarily any sort of guarantee of having a higher socioeconomic level, right? The th- I think the thing that actually stands out to me more, though, are not the differences, but the continuities, right? Or the things that are shared, which is I feel when I walk into a Tibetan home and here it doesn't matter if I'm, I'm in Tibet um, or in Kalimpong or, you know, in Toronto, <laughs> you know, any of those places, um, I'm welcomed in. We sit down often on a bed covered with a carpet, right? And beds are around, arranged around often some sort of square kind of coffee table. Um, and, and I'm immediately offered tea. I'm in a room where there's there's a presence of, of religion in some way. Now, inside Tibet, sometimes you have to look a little harder to see that. It depends where you are. Really? Um, you know, just because of because of government regulations, right? Wow. You're not allowed to have any images of the Dalai Lama, for example. Mm-hmm. So the images that might be on display in Tibetan homes inside Tibet might look a little different, right? They might be different ones than you would see in exile. Things mm-hmm. might be arranged differently alongside images of, let's just say, Buddha or maybe local Lama or Rinpoche. There might be images of Mao or Xi Jinping, right? That um, whether... The residents of the home have been ordered to put them up, whether they've been hanging since the Cultural Revolution or whether they're they're up there to kind of make sure nothing bad happens. Right. Should security forces enter their home. Right. So there's all sorts of reasons why images like that might be on, you know, a wall uh, next to religious images of religious figures right inside Tibet. But it's those sorts of continuities. Right. Kind of the way that um, hospitality works in terms of receiving a guest into your home, but then also um, the material kind of things like, you know, tea, there might be a basket of cups, say, on the table or shakambo or, you know, dry meat. Um, And then just, right, the way that that religion um, in a material presence, right, a visual presence would also be in the room, you know, kind of like the deities overlooking, right, the whole scene. Those sorts of continuities, um, the way people interact with each other. Um, I find those to really be constant. It doesn't matter where I am in the world, right? Again, I go to Switzerland where the, you know, status, um, socioeconomic status, very high, right? And then I can come from Switzerland and go to one of the camps in Pokhara, Nepal. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of those camps, or at least the one particular one I have in, in mind, um, socioeconomic standard, not very high. And yet the warmth with which, you know, someone would be welcomed into a home and and the hospitality, you know, um, given to them w- would be exactly the same. Right. So it doesn't matter if you're I mean, of course, it matters in some ways if you're rich or poor. Um, but there's still there's there's a shared um, sensibility in terms of just being in the world and being with others that um, that I think cuts across place no um, class and those sorts of things um, to this day. <laughs> touche, touche. Um, I've been eager to ask you this question. Uh, what do you think makes the Tibetan culture so unique? The obvious answer, of course, is Buddhism. Um, and, you know, Tibetan society is deeply, deeply right influenced by Buddhism. It is hard to pull, you know, the the two apart. And so, even for myself as a political anthropologist and historian, sorry, there's a bug flying around me. 
uh, you know, to talk about politics or governance in Tibet, you have to talk about religion, right? Chutsi, like they, they, they go together. Um, and yet not all Tibetan culture society is, is about religion, right? It's also about relationship to place. And so even for people in exile, that might be where you are, but also a connection perhaps to where you came from. Um, to where your family is originally from. And even as the decades go on, right, for folks who are living outside Tibet, an understanding that that, that place um, is, is part of who you are, right? You might not have been there, but you might have heard stories about the flowers that grow there. Um, you might have heard about the kinds of apples, right, that your parents grew up eating, you know, um, in the in the autumn each year, right? You can't get those in Mumbai. You can't get those in Boulder, but we're back now to storytelling, right? And so I think part of the, and this is especially important for, um, for a society that has such a split in it, right? In terms of distance from each other because of occupation and colonization, that Buddhism, of course, right, saturates Tibetan life. But in this time of exile and the time of separation, you know, of community, I think those stories and memories are also what really, for me, kind of um, emanate very strongly, right, from what it is that makes Tibetan culture special. Absolutely. And um, yes, we cannot deny the fact that Buddhism is central to our culture and it's, it is infused in our culture, actually. And uh, even before uh, Buddhism in Tibet, uh, there was a religion called Bun religion, mm -hmm. um, yeah. which, which also I think later on, if you look at the Tibet Buddhism we have today, is actually a melange of, uh, you know, the Bun and the Buddhism right. from India. And I find uh, certain practices and certain beliefs so intriguing, Dr. McGrenahan. Um, mm -hmm. what, what is your take on that? What do you feel about that, that melange? What, what is your take on that? I mean, that's actually the story of most religions around the world, mm. right? So exactly, if we look at Buddhism in Tibet, we see, for example, all of the ways that the spirits and deities that inhabited the land before Buddhism came to Tibet were, were brought into Buddhism. And let's be clear, that was not always a, a gentle bringing into Buddhism. Right. You know, so there's the story of the demoness who needs to be tamed, right? Mm. And she is pinned down on the Simo, right? And um, stupas are built, chortens are built at, at her, I'm kind of uh, holding up my wrists now, at her hips, right? At her ankles, so that Buddhism can tame, right? Mm. Those pre Buddhist, and they weren't necessarily Bun. Some of them were just local, right? Deities that existed in Tibet prior to the coming mm. of Buddhism. Mm. But then they get brought in. We see the same thing with Christianity, right? And even um, you know, Christmas, for example, people believe was originally the celebration of the winter solstice, right? But then mm -hmm. this existing holiday had a Christian overlay put on it, you know. And and so that happens um, with the advent of you know a, a organized religion. Mm. Kind of over the course of human history, but absolutely in Buddhism, right? Things that existed prior sort of become part of it, still kind of have their own, um, you know, elements of being. So, for example, if we were to travel throughout the Himalaya, right, each mountain right, has its own deity that resides in it. Yes, um, I've heard about and that. And all of the villagers, right, surrounding those mountains regularly make offerings to those deities. People who don't live in other, you know, parts of the country or, or the mountain range do, right? But so that attention to, to the local, 
I think is one of the things also, um, you know, that both it kind of coexists with Buddhism as both part of it now in that many of the offerings that are made to those deities are now like Buddhist ones. However, they also, um, you know, are much more ancient practices, right, and ideas, you know, that are just culturally grounded um, in, in who knows what, actually, right, that many, many, not decades ago, centuries ago, people thought were the right things to do, mm. right? Mm-hmm. True, true, true. Um, that is so true. I've heard about the mountain deities from, again, mm-hmm. from my Amala, because she is the chief storyteller at our house. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I've heard about these stories and uh, um, these practices, you know, sometimes when I look at our, uh, you know, the system, the, the way we lived in Tibet, even though it may seem to outsiders that we lived uh, like, uh, like, even though it was the century where the other part of the world was developing and there was revolution happening, it mm-hmm. seemed, Tibet seemed medieval to them, right? But uh, there are certain things about our system. I feel like people were so advanced at that time, sometimes even more than us today. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I, I do find that about our culture and about our tradition. So um, as we're speaking about the Tibetan culture, um, I know that along with conducting research, you write, lecture, and teach. And you are providing students with an experience of what Tibet and Tibetan culture is. How are you able to do that? How are the students experiencing our culture? So this is where I take anthropology's... Um, field methods, right? Our research methods, which basically called ethnography and bring that into the classroom. So I regularly teach a class on Tibet uh, for about 200 students at our university. So it's a large, massive class. It is. Mm-hmm. And the goal is to get them, and most of them know nothing about Tibet when they start. Occasionally, some Tibetan students take the class. But because this is in the United States, most of my students come from different backgrounds, right? Their families come from countries around the world originally. Um, and the goal is that by the end of the semester, they will have an understanding of what kind of a, a Tibetan approach to making sense of, for example, um, you know, a deity living in a mountain, right? Or conceiving of a mountain as possessing a deity, perhaps Tibetan medicine to talk about, um, throw in here, uh, one realm in which the Tibetan world, you're right, has been very advanced for a long time, right? In terms of thinking of of kind of the way that um, certain scientific knowledge, um, you know, took place in Tibet in advanced levels well before, um, you know, the present, Um, not just medicine, but also, I think, um, you know, astronomy and certainly philosophy, right, in terms of reflecting on the nature of existence, the nature of self, uh, life and death, right, and so on. Okay. When I teach about Tibet, right, to students here in the United States, and, and they're not just American students from different backgrounds, but often international students as well. Um, the goal for everyone in the class, even if they are Tibetan students, right, is to learn to think about Tibet from an anthropological or ethnographic perspective, which means as if you are explaining it to um, you're like like your Amala, actually, the way that a parent would explain it to a child. 
right? So if you, I often use an example about pointing and you can see there's actually an image of a deity. It's a Tara behind me. And I used my, I pointed using my entire uh, open palm. Yes, you have to do that. It would be an appropriate way to palm, uh, to point. You might even, if, if it was a gupa, right, of his holiness, uh, you might even hold it up with another Yes, hand, we do that. Right? To do that. What you wouldn't do is point the way that we would commonly point in the United States, which is one finger. Mm. Right? My goal for my students is to understand why these things matter. Right? Like, what does it mean to show respect by holding your body in a certain way? Right. What are you communicating and how does it matter? So anthropology is really about getting to the meaning of things, not just knowing the form of how to correctly point, but understanding why it matters right, within society. Um, to know the resources, the cultural resources that people in any given like society around the world would have to draw on in times of crisis. Right. To understand the role of, say, proverbs. Right? in teaching children what it means to be a good person. So all of these are the kinds of things um, that I teach my students. And we start the class by reading His Holiness's autobiography. That's the book that, that we all read together to kind of ground students in not just kind of the what happened aspect of contemporary Tibetan life, but in His Holiness's journey. Um, and the way that he wants to share Tibet with the world, which is incredibly anthropological in terms of his own often um, delighted kind of observations and musings about things in Tibetan society and culture. You know, like he really is excited to share it with the world. And so that's how we start the class. That's amazing. I would want to be in your class. Can I enroll, please? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that would be wonderful. Yes. So thank you so much, Dr. McGrenahan, for being on CTT. And thank you for your genuine interest and support for Tibetan people and our culture. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you like this episode, then please give me a shout out by mentioning me in your Instagram stories and posts. My Instagram handle is tenzin.chidun.24. That is T-E-N-Z-I-N dot C-H-O-D-O-N dot 24. You can also DM me if you have any questions. To stay updated about waking up closer to Tibet, don't forget to follow at HD Smartcast on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. To listen to more podcasts, log on to hdsmartcast.com or suno ne nazariyese. This was an HD Smartcast original. HD Smartcast.